Good evening. I love um, prayers like that because, you know, we're talking about this isn't just a Bible study and, and um, that, you know, God, could you, actually, could you actually find a way into my life tonight where something could be said, I could read a passage out of your word and, and actually have my life changed. And that's why I come. I come to have my life changed. I come because I believe in the power of God's word and nothing that man's going to say or the wisdom that you and I have is going to compare to God changing you because of his word. And in fact, he promises in 2 Timothy 3 that that's what his word will do. It's, it promises to teach and rebuke and correct and train us in righteousness so that we may become uh, the, man and women, uh, the men and women that God has promised us to. I was in the back and... and um, you know, we were talking about the book of James and, and you know, why did we pick the book of James? And there are some books, I don't know if you've faced this, but some books in the Bible I read and there's parts of it where I just, I'm confused, I don't understand or I have to do a lot of research historically. And, um, but the book of James, uh, I was sharing that almost every chunk of scripture I read in the book of James, I just, I read it as if James was writing a letter personally to me. And, and I hope we feel that tonight. We start right off the bat with, uh, in fact, if you have your Bibles, go to James 1. Um, we start right off the bat with James giving just a greeting. And on first blush, you might think that that's all this is, is a greeting. Uh, in fact, if we have this, um, can we put an iPad up if you get a chance? Thank you. We had mentioned last week that James is... Um, is the half-brother of Jesus, and so he's not one, he's not James, son of Zebedee, or um, he's not one of the Jameses of the twelve apostles, but he is the half-brother of Jesus. And we note that in the beginning last week, James was very opposed to Jesus in terms of humanly, how can my brother claim to do the things he's doing and, and say he is the Messiah, and I really don't believe him. And it wasn't until 1 Corinthians 15 where Jesus appears to James, Paul says, that we really think that James had his life turned around. Up until then, I think he was a doubter. And then he became a devoted follower. And because of that, God said, I will take you, James, and I will use your experience and your talents and your skill set, and I will, I will use you to help launch some of the first churches the world has ever known, specifically in the church of Jerusalem, or he was one of the leaders in Jerusalem, so much so that he had influence on the apostle Paul, who wrote a good portion of the New Testament. And so we, we notice that it, he starts with James and we actually stopped there last week just with his name to clarify who we're talking about. So we pick it up in James 1 again and James says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. And most of us, I think if we were just doing a regular Bible study or a group effort, we would just kind of say, okay, that's the introduction. It's the book of James. James is saying hi to everyone. But I just want to stop and pause as we begin tonight and really massage this passage because I think there's something in here, at least I found, that I found to be really interesting, and that is this. Um, in fact, if I were to say this, this quote to you, and, and we have mics here, and so, so raise your hand, grab a mic. What do you think D.L. Moody means here? What do you think Dwight says here to us? When he says, God sends no one away empty except those who are full of themselves. Catchy. Would look good on the back of a car. What does that mean to you? 
there's no room for God as long as you're full of yourself. You're going to be empty forever. Okay, as long as you're full of yourself, there's no room for God. Good. Anyone else? I was going to say something along those lines, except he, he wants to teach you things, except if you know everything, then there's no room for learning. Kind of, um, I, if, if I've got it all figured out, God doesn't have anywhere to, to, anything to put in me, but how does he send me away? Ironically, if I'm full of myself, what is Moody saying I get sent away as? Empty, yeah, I kind of get sent away empty. God fills those who are empty, but if you're full of yourselves, God says, okay, well, you seem to have it all figured out, and yeah, ironically, you go away empty. Yeah? Um, I, I think it's in... Uh... In John, where he's uh, sitting there at dinner with Matthew, and Matthew and the sinners, and they're all there, and the Pharisees come up and say, you know, why are you here hanging out with all the sinners? And God, uh, or Jesus rebukes him and says, you know, I'm here for the broken, or a doctor comes for the sick, not the healthy. One of the things that kind of struck me is, it seemed a bit sarcastic. That seems a bit, is he really saying that the Pharisee isn't, isn't sick? Or is, he, uh, is it a bit tongue-in-cheek saying, you know, you're just as sick as everybody else. It's just you don't realize that you, you don't need get a doctor it. as well. That's and great. It's sort of the same thing. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Jesus said, I came to seek those who are who? Who are lost, right? Yeah. It could be a statement of grace. There's no room for God's grace in the, uh, the humans. If you're in the back half of that, if you're full of yourself, there is no room for God to share his, shed his grace upon you. Yeah, what do we call this person on the back half? He or she is prideful. And the reason I start with this tonight, guys, I guess is because as I read, starting in the book of James here, I read that James, he claims to be a bondservant of God. Now, bondservant, you probably know or, or may have heard that the word in the Greek is doulos. It's a servant of God. In, in the Old Testament, you could be a slave. You could be owned by someone. And the thinking in the New Testament, when Paul calls himself a bondservant, Peter calls himself a bondservant, James calls himself a bondservant, isn't necessarily that I'm owned by someone as much as it is that I'm voluntarily coming under someone. As you see the difference? So in the Old Testament, in fact, in the book of Leviticus... Someone could be owned by someone else and and God wanted to have mercy on that slave, that servant. And so he made a rule in Leviticus 25, I believe, and then it's confirmed in Exodus 21, where God said, you shall own a slave or a slave shall be owned by his master for six years. But then in the seventh year, the master has to do what to the slave? Has to free the slave. Now, what's interesting about that is, and, and I, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on Old Testament slavery and, and the, the ethical issues there. But what's interesting there is that you would think, because of our idea of slavery, that the slave, as soon as the seventh year hit, just gone. But there's a provision then in Exodus 21 that says this. If the slave comes back, and we think that he, he or she could come back for various reasons, for family that's still there, for not knowing really how to live out in the world uh, for the safety and security that an owner could provide. Whatever the reason is, the slave actually had an option to come back to the owner and really form an agreement with the owner to continue to be a servant of, of the owner. And then when they had a covenant between them, then that would last for the lifetime of the servant. And the way they signified that uh, that 
agreement was they would they would take the slave and, and put their put his ear up to the doorpost and you know what an awl is like an a w l like a, a nail punch and the owner would punch a hole in the ear of the servant and so when he, when the servant then hung out with other slaves they would be distinguished that i came back voluntarily i'm here by choice and so i think that 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 vision or that visual is carried over to the new testament when james says he's a bond servant of god i think what james is saying here is i have a choice to do whatever i want in life and i'm choosing to come under i'm choosing to be a servant of god but look at the back half he says of god and of who else of this of my half brother of the lord jesus and i don't want us to miss this i guess gang because Because James has a lot of things to say to you and I over the next several weeks. Things that are going to be very pointed and very um, practical. And yet for some of us, we're going to have to make some some radical changes if we're going to obey. And I want to start, I guess, our passageway into James by suggesting that James is a man of humility. He's a man that says, listen, I, I, he could have been called an apostle, though he wasn't one of the twelve. There were roughly 18 to 19 men, we think, in the Bible that could have been apostles through the various scriptures and Romans and Galatians. And, and he was one of them. He was certainly in Galatians 2.9, Paul calls him a pillar of the church. And, and he really meets all the qualifications of an apostle. And so an apostle is just basically one sent forth. He could have started the letter by saying, listen, I know who I am. If you read Acts chapters basically 12 to 15, I carry a great position here in the local church. And so I'm going to I'm going to tell you what you need to do in life and you need to listen because of my title. And I think often in circles we run in today, don't we come up against that? Why should I do this? Because I told you to do it and this is me and this is you. And then how do we perform that act? Disgruntled. We perform it questioning why. We perform it griping and complaining. And James says, you know what, I'm not going to start that way because I know I've got to share some very difficult things with this group of Jewish believers and ultimately with us. So I'm going to start by letting you know who I think I am. I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. I'm a servant of the Lord God Almighty. Um. Yesterday, or was it Sunday, if you were here at church, Pastor Lynn spoke of King David. You'll remember he's talked about King David's family. It was a great message. I really appreciated it. And if you weren't here, um, he talked about David sinning with Bathsheba and killing Uriah and then having kids, right? And Tamar and Absalom and Amnon. And, and Absalom is his son and he, and he rapes his daughter Tamar, or his, his sister Tamar. And then, you know, and there's conflict in Amnon. Was, so we heard that story on Sunday and David is is lost in all of this. And I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about this passage where James talks about pride versus humility, basically, and as we start out. And, and, and don't you get the feel that when, was it, was it Nathan the prophet that goes and sees David in 2 Samuel chapter 12, right? And so David thinks he's in the clear. And so David thinks, yeah, I've, I've committed sin, I've committed adultery, I've... I've I'm going to, she's going to birth our our son and I've killed her husband, but I think I'm in the clear. I don't think anyone really notices. 
And so Nathan the prophet shows up and he says, David, I want to tell you a story. He talks about the rich man, poor man, and the rich man has, you know, lambs and the poor man does, but the rich man wants the poor man's lamb. And so he steals it, basically. He just takes it. And remember, David just gets upset about that. And he says, you know, you know I should, we should go after the rich man. And what does Nathan say to David? He says, you're the guy, you're that guy that you're so upset about right now. And while I read that kind of account, I can just see pride all over David's life at that point. Because that's what pride is, right? Pride is just that we think we've got it covered. We're just so full of ourselves that we don't need to be told what to do or when to do it or how to do it. And it's not until God comes along and says, I've got some things to share with you about prideful people. Do we realize that when we live that kind of a life, we will be very, very ineffective for the Lord. And yet it's so tempting to do, isn't it? Um, In Proverbs chapter 6, maybe I'll write a couple of these down. In Proverbs chapter 6, do you know what that passage, it's a great passage. Um, uh, Solomon is saying, um, he's saying there's six things that the Lord hates. Yes, seven are abomination to him. Right, so six things God hates, but seven are an abomination to him. You know what he leads off with? Now, these aren't the only things God hates. I think, uh, I think um, Solomon is making a point here that God doesn't like certain things. So, th- so it's not an exhaustive list, but it's a list. And you know what he leads with in Proverbs 6.16? Yeah, he, he phrases it different. He says, haughty eyes. Six things God hates, seven are abomination to him. And the first thing are haughty eyes. Haughty meaning proud eyes. Someone that walks around just proud. The very first thing he lists is pride. And we see this over and over and over again in the, in the scriptures. And do you, do you, can you take a guess as to why God so abhors pride? Think back with me to the very beginning. Who was the most prideful? Satan. Satan challenges God, but Satan's motivation for challenging God is pride. Wants to be like God, wants to be better than God. And so God casts him out. And I think ever since then, God has recognized and and wanted to demonstrate to us, you can't have pride in your life. And I will spend passage after passage after passage from Genesis all the way over to Revelation reminding you of that. Because that's our human nature, is to become prideful. Is to read the press, basically, about our own lives. Uh, James, later in James, in fact, if you're still in James, just flip over one passage, or one page, to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, look at verse 6. James says, but God gives a greater grace, therefore it says God opposes, or is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Drop down to verse 10 then. So then James, and we'll, we'll get to this in a few weeks, but James says, humble yourselves therefore in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. In Luke chapter 14, um, Jesus says, in fact, I'll write some of these down if you want to take notes. In Luke chapter 14, uh, verses 11 and following, Jesus makes it clear that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. First uh, Peter 5, 5, Peter acknowledges what, uh, and James, we'll put that into, 
um, Peter acknowledges what James is talking about. Now listen again to what Jesus says in Luke. He says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Humble, you, humble, humble yourself and you will be exalted. Jesus is not saying everyone who exalts himself, just, you know, you better prepare because it's not going to be good life for you. He, he's not saying everyone who exalts himself um, is going to have a different life than those who live a humble life. What he's saying, folks, to you and to me is everyone who exalts themselves, I promise you this. I will humble you. And I, I guys, I stand before you tonight and I don't know much, but I know this. I don't want to be opposed by God. I don't know much. But if it says God is opposed to the proud and I'm proud, conclusion, God is opposed to me. And I don't want that. I don't want to be humbled by God. Because God will exact that promise in your life and in my life. And it's not going to be fun. It just won't be. David is standing before Nathan and, and he just he thinks he's in the clear. And Nathan says, you're the guy, David. Now, thankfully, what did David do in response to that to that accusation? Fessed up, right? He came clean and he said, you're right. I am that guy. He said, I have sinned against God. And so as Pastor Lynn said on Sunday, this was OK then. It's not that if you're proud, you can't repent. This is OK but if God is, is bent on humbling you, I guarantee you those around you will feel the effect of God humbling you. And it happens over and over and over again in Scripture. Therefore, uh, David says in Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God. If you want to bring an offering to God, the sacrifices to him are a broken and contrite heart. If you think you're impressing God with the money we bring and the, the skill sets and talents we bring to him, David says, no, 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 no. You want to impress God? Do you want to please God? Come before him with a broken and contrite heart, a humble heart. So I was thinking about that in terms of our contemporaries. If you were to think of contemporaries today, maybe in the past 50, 60 years or so up to current, can you think of anyone in in social circles in popular culture that you would deem as a humble person? Anyone? I mean, who do you, who do you consider t- in today's society as humble? Neil Armstrong? I'll take it. Yeah. No reason not to think that. Billy Graham. Billy Graham. Anyone else? Warren Buffett? I've never done lunch with him. It was interesting. I saw a, uh, he was in a roundtable discussion with Bill Gates, Buffett and Gates. Um, how much money is in that room? I think they were at a college somewhere and they were taking Q&A from college kids. And of all the questions you could ask Warren Buffett and Bill Gates when you're in their presence, of anything you could ask them, some college kid stood up and said, how much is in your pockets right now? That was the best they had. I think, I can't remember what they said. I think they said a few thousand, you know, whatever it was. <laughs> it's just a different life. Aren't they living a different life? And so can you imagine how tempting it would be to be prideful with that kind of a life, that kind of a bankroll? Are, are we though, I ask that because I'm thinking this, are we hard pressed when I say, can you think of people who are humble in popular culture? Are you hard pressed to come up with a list of five people, 10 people? What if I narrowed it down? What if I got into your life and said, in your circle of influence, 
family, extended family, friends, co-workers. Can you list 10 people that you would say, that's a humble person? Easy, hard? Um, I was thinking of, um, I was thinking of uh, Mother Teresa. I don't know if there's a shot up there. Uh, Mother Teresa, um, she did missionary work, obviously, for most of her life. She uh, was in Calcutta, India. Uh, this is the building that she, she founded the orphanage in and, uh, and lived in, basically, most of her life. That's her, um, that's her casket. That's her, she, it's her um, tomb, if you will. And you can go to Calcutta, I believe, and you can visit it. But when I think of humility, when I think of someone who is humble... Mother Teresa comes to my mind. God used this person that, let's just admit it. Let's just kind of be honest. She wasn't a looker. Right? I mean, she wasn't going to get much off of her looks. I mean, like this high, you know. And, and, yet, and, and she said basically to God, I want to spend my life serving you, so give me the poorest of poor. Like, give me, you know, who, give me someone that I can just love on for, for my life. Never married. And so, so she wanted to live as a bondservant of God, as a bondservant of Jesus. And what happens when we do that? God says, I will humble the proud and I will exalt the humble. Do you think God exalted Mother Teresa? She has met kings and queens and dignitaries and royalty in the later half of her life. God was flying her around from country to country, meeting with all of these royal big wigs. And every time I saw her on TV, I just never got the impression that she was just loving that. It was almost like she was enduring it, meeting with presidents after president after president after president and and just kind of like, let me get back to what I love to do, which is ministering to these little kids. Isn't it ironic that when she died, do you know who died two or three days before she died? You would think that someone who lives a humble life, God says, I'm going to take you and exalt you and show you the world, Mother Teresa. I'm going to blow your mind in terms of showing you, setting you before kings and queens and dignitaries and royalties. You would think at least she would, God would say, at the end of your life then, when you die, the whole world will know about it. Post-mortem, psh, splash is going to be huge. You know who died two or three days before she died? That two billion people turned in to watch her funeral? Anyone remember? Princess Diana, anybody watch the funeral? You know you did, I did. 1997, what were you doing in 97? At two in the morning on September 6th, I think it was. Tuned in, who was tuned in? I, two and a half billion, I think they said, watched her funeral. I've never met Princess Di, I'm not accusing. Um, in contrast, um, this is Princess Diana's burial grounds. She's actually buried... Um, right here. I think once a year they let you go to the burial grounds. Other than that, I think it's closed off just to family. So this immaculate looking piece of land really doesn't get used much. I don't think this boat has ever been used. These were all the flowers that, you know, people laid and, and tragedy. It's tragic. I mean, you watched William and, and Harry and you looked at these two little boys and uh, absolutely tragic. I just thought of the irony, though, that, that Princess Di, I mean, let's just admit it. Um, I, you know, I stay awake at night, I think, wondering what does royalty do over there? What is their job? I mean, is it, what do they really do? 
Seems like a lot of visiting and a lot of, you know, but the perks are pretty good. Let's just admit it, right? And she, she fought, I think Di fought hard at serving, you know, being a humanitarian. But I just thought how ironic that, that her death completely overshadowed Mother Teresa's. And yet how fitting. I, I think Mother Teresa would have wanted it that way. God will exalt the humble. He will humble the proud. Um, I, I don't know if you can see it through the board there, but uh, Di's funeral cost about five million pounds. I think it's one and a half bucks to the pound or so. Um, so let's say six million dollars, which I thought was extravagant until I started looking it up. Do you know how much Ronald Reagan's funeral cost? Just for kicks. And I don't know if the stat's right, so I apologize if it's not, but I read it was 400 million. That crazy? I mean, we can just, we can get crazy with funerals. Nonetheless, six millions, you know. This is what uh, Mother Teresa had to say, though. I thought it, I thought it uh, spoke to what we're talking about tonight. Humility doesn't mean leaders think less of themselves. Uh, it means they think of themselves less. And so as we get into the book of James, I guess I want us to start with asking you and I this question. When we're about to impose uh, something onto someone's life by way of wisdom, by way of advice, by way of, hey, you need to do this or you should stop doing this. Do they see the person giving that advice as a humble person? The great thing about humility is you can't brag about it. You can't tell someone you're humble. Loses a little steam when you do that. You just have to do it. You have to be a servant leader. You have to lead under. Uh, even if you're at the top, guys, even if you're at the top of the chain here at your business or your location, wherever you're at, you have to lead under. James leads under by his example we see in Acts 12 to 15. And then when he says, listen, I'm about to tell you some hard truths. I want you to know first off the bat, I'm a bond servant of Jesus. So I'm a fellow brother Christian coming to another fellow brother Christian, uh, brother or sister saying, here are some things I know to be true about life. Real, real practical things. But please don't think that I'm coming at you with the authority of an apostle, which I could. I'm coming at you as a servant, a uh, servant leader. How can you combat pride, do you think? Just real practical. How do you combat pride? What do you think? How do you deal with the temptation to be prideful? Pray, okay. Okay, shut it when you need to. Anything else? Yeah. Be teachable. It's hard for a prideful person to be teachable, isn't it? What? Okay, that, and that's what I was looking for. Ding, 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 ding. I don't know of a better way to, to stop being prideful than to serve. If you, have, if you have kids or if you have, you know, and, and you see them kind of getting all puffy, throw them into service somewhere. When, I, when, when I'm serving and my focus is on someone else, it is just hard for me to be, it's hard for it to be on myself. If you're struggling tonight with pride, if you're struggling, if it, you know, truth be told, if my family were to answer the question, prideful or, or humble, they'd probably check prideful. Go serve somewhere. Uh, it, there's a countless number of things you could do around this campus. Pick up the phone, call the church office and say, what do you need help with this Sunday? And, and, and I dare you to say, because I'm struggling with pride, 
just really struggling with pride, so what do you need help with? Let's just come clean. James says, I'm a bondservant of God and of Jesus. Um, I look at the leadership around here, and we'll move on here, but I look at the leadership around here, and guys, truth be told, I don't want to be under someone who's prideful. I just don't. I don't have time for it. I think, I think a lot of us have been. We've worked for, we've lived with, we've been around people who are prideful. And I'm at the age where I don't have time for it anymore. So I'm choosing to be here at Cornerstone, but that's in part because when I look at the leadership, I look at humility. I look at people who are serving Jesus as faithful as they possibly can. And they're humble. They're being humble about it. uh, Every week when I stand and worship with Brian, all I see is humility. Every week when Pastor Lynn comes out, he speaks with authority, but he speaks with humility. Doesn't claim to know it all but wants to share what God is teaching him. Find people who are humble and, and get near to them. And that's what we're going to do with James here. So James says, James, a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ and of God. And here's his audience. He says to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad greetings. The reason that these people are dispersed is because we have persecution starting to form now early on after Jesus has left. Um, We have Herod Agrippa, we find in Acts 12, he was the grandson, uh, I'm sorry, he was the nephew of Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas was the one who beheaded John the Baptist. So you can see kind of it runs in the family. And so Herod Agrippa begins to mistreat believers in Acts chapter 12. Um, he has James, the disciple, the, the apostle James, he has him killed by the sword in Acts 12 too. And after he does that, he saw that it pleased the Jews. And so he goes and arrests Peter. And that's where we have Peter's miraculous breaking out of jail seen in Acts chapter 12. So that all starts with Herod Agrippa there. And then the persecution of Christians keeps going. Nero in, in uh, after Claudius, then you have Nero, Roman emperor in 64 AD, you have the burning of Rome. You may recall, and that lasts, I believe, for four years. And Nero's got to find a scapegoat. He's got to find someone to blame. So who does he blame? Blames the Christians. And that's why we have James writing to those who are dispersed. Because these Jewish Christians can't take the persecution, and they start bolting. And now they're all over the place. And that's who James is writing to. And James is going to now begin this this treatise on suffering and going through trials but that's why he's doing it because he's writing to people who are experiencing immediate persecution um in fact i was looking up um uh what happened to christians in the first century uh look at this it's just uh at first um this comes from this comes from a historian that lived during that time and he says at first um Tacitus, he says, at first uh, they were arrested, were arrested those who openly confess their belief. Then after their accusation, a great multitude were imprisoned, not just accused of having caused the fire, but because they were regarded as being burning with hatred against the human race. Again, Nero was looking to, to put the, his, the, the screws down on Christians. They were put to death with refined cruelty, says Tacitus, and Nero added scorn and derision to their sufferings. And then he describes some of their sufferings. He says some were clad in the skins of wild beasts. Some were thrown to the dogs to be devoured. Others were nailed to the cross. Others burned alive and still others covered with flammable material. 
which was then set on fire as torches after sunset. It's a common fact, I guess, that Nero would often line his gardens to light his gardens, the pathways of his gardens, put stakes down and put Christians on the stakes, dead or alive, cover them in pitch or tar, and then set them on fire. He was looking for a group of people to blame. He blamed the Christians and persecution ramped up at that point. Um, All of the disciples then, we know, died martyrs' deaths except for one. Peter was crucified upside down in AD 64. James was beheaded in AD 44. Andrew was crucified on a diagonal or X-shaped cross. Philip was crucified. Bartholomew was flayed alive. He was skinned alive. And then, out of mercy, he was beheaded. Matthew was killed by an axe in AD 60. Now, I don't care... You know, you don't need to get any more descriptive than that. I don't need to know much more, but if you're going to get killed by an axe, that's going to hurt. Thomas was killed by a spear. James was stoned at the age of 90. The other James, son of Alphaeus, was stoned at the age of 90. And Jude was clubbed to death and then beheaded. Simon the Zealot was sawn in half in AD 74. So when we talk about trials and persecution, I guess I just want to keep that in mind. Um, that we're all going through some sort of trial and persecution. Look at verse 2 then. And so James says, with that in mind, knowing that we all go through trials and persecution, with that in mind, James starts his his treatise on, on trials with this. He says, consider it all joy, my brethren, or he says, rejoice, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. A trial is... um, A trial is something uh, that breaks the pattern. I like that definition. Something that breaks the pattern. And the pattern here would be comfort or joy. uh, I'm sorry, comfort or uh, peace or happiness. Um, The verb, if you use it in a verb form, it means to be put to the test. So James is saying that something is going to come your way that's going to put you to the test. And the end result of that will be good. The end result will be that you will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We see the same um, formula here. We see the same formula in Matthew 5. In fact, I'm going to throw some verses up here, but take your Bibles, turn to Matthew 5 real quick. Matthew 5, Romans 3. Uh, We've got it in Hebrews. And then we have it in 1 Peter as well. Matthew chapter 5. And the reason I want to emphasize that other writers are saying the same thing as James is because what James is saying, I just find uh, so counterintuitive and so hard to do. I want to make sure that he's not the only one saying it. Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, Jesus says, Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things against you falsely on account of me. Jesus says here, Rejoice, be full of joy and be glad 
for your reward is in heaven and it's going to be great for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus says trials are going to come your way and when they do rejoice on them. Be, be happy about that, that trials are coming your way. Be full of joy about that. Uh, turn over to, just go to the right here and turn over to Romans real quick. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and Romans. Romans chapter 3. Sorry, that's Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 5. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 5. Jesus tells us to rejoice. Paul in Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 3, he says, And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. We find that again in Hebrews and we find that again in Peter. And so the formula seems to be something like this. Correct me if I'm wrong. The formula seems to be like this. Trial will result in um, endurance. That endurance results in, um, let's say complete. How about that? Okay. So we have this formula throughout the New Testament which says you're going to have trials, you're going to have tests, you're going to have tribulation in life. The goal is to persevere, to endure through those trials. And when you do, your reward will be great, including a number of things. Jesus says your reward will be in heaven. So we have rewards in heaven because of that. Paul and and James seem to say that you will be made complete. Paul is more descriptive than James, but the end result of you enduring through a trial is that you will be made whole. And while we can think about that and massage that for a little bit, that's not the question I have tonight. I can understand this on some level. What do you think my question is tonight? What do you think I have a problem with? Just shout it out. What? The endurance, hard, right? Um, we're told in the scriptures that God won't give us anything beyond what we can handle. Um, we're told that we can use the power and strength God gives us to endure. Hard, but, but that's not exactly what I'm struggling with. Not fear. It's, it is scary. I mean, none of us want to go through trials necessarily. Well, why do we need to even go through them? Seems to me that if we believe in God, we should just be, we should have a happy life. Trial free. Yes. Yeah, I, 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 you know, for those of us who have lived a little, a little while in life, um, while that would be, you know, utopian and, and great, we all know that it's just not, that's not going to happen. I don't struggle. I don't think any of us struggle with the fact that we're going to have trials. I think early on, we accept the fact that trials are going to come our way. Uh, when I was seven, my parents divorced and a trial came my way. Uh, two and a half years ago, when Leanne passed away, uh, Malia was four, trials came her way. Trials come our way, uh, I think, starting at an early age on. And we're told to persevere and endure and we will be able to complete. That's not what I struggle with. What I struggle with is the first three words Paul uses in, cha- in verse 2. How am I to view trials? With what? With joy. Rejoice because you have 
a crappy life. I don't know if I can say that on stage. Would the uh, question be, uh, when the rubber meets the road, when the rubber meets the road, are you going to choose God's way or your way? Uh, I'm sorry. The question was, when the when the rubber meets the road. When you, yeah. Are you going to choose your way or God's way? Right. Yeah. I, yeah. No, that's a great question. I think that's and I think that's embedded throughout this whole, from Paul to to Jesus to James. They're all saying that same thing, which is trials are going to come your way. You have a choice when trials come your way. You can choose your way or God's way. Yeah, definitely. What, what I guess, what I just kind of what knocks my legs out from under me is the command to rejoice. That's what I struggle with. Um, be full of joy when trials come your way. Uh, when Leanne got killed in March of 2010, I started journaling. And I did it, really it was cathartic. I just did it. Um, and now, looking back, I'm glad I did for the sole reason that my kids have something to, to read. Um, and it starts at day zero. Uh, hours after she passed away, I just started writing. And I wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. And, and then three, four, five, six months into it, it just became more of a discipline because um, I wanted to keep it up. And so I did it for a year. I did, I did it almost every day for a year. Um, and uh, uh, some fascinating things happened with it. But long story short, um, every now and then I'll just, I will find myself back in those, just revisiting those. Um, for and maybe it's um, I'm not sure why, but I do. And um, so recently, as I was looking at this passage, and I'm thinking about James and going through trials, and you know, he says, "Consider it joy when you encounter various trials." Well, my trial recently has been that, and so I just was revisiting those journal entries, and um, that's you know that I get it, James. I guess I hear what you're saying. That's hard. Um. I didn't see it much in the entries. I didn't see in the entries starting out with, it's just, it's a great day because my three kids are just buried in grief. And they they miss their mom. It's a great day because, uh, you know, my kids will graduate without their mom and then we walk down the aisle, you know, and and their mom won't be there. That's a great, it's a rejoice. I didn't see much of that saw a lot of God why and and here's what I discovered folks is that I was preaching during that season various churches throughout the weekend and every place I went I you know would just share the story on some level after every service and, and people knew me from Adam right they didn't know me I was the guest preacher I'd come in preach at small churches big churches whatever and after every service I would just kind of what I do here I just you know whatever and Half a dozen, dozen people, 15, 20 people would line up afterwards, person after person after person, tears running down their face. Same story. Child, spouse, loved one. Same story. And we would just look at each other and just weep and cry. Uh, and yes, it was, it was helpful. But I think we were both asking the same question, which is why? And you're no different, right? You can, we can all go around the room and share the trials we've all been with, been through, or going through. Um, I don't know if Blaine and Shelly, are Blaine and Shelly here? Any Blaine? No? Oh, there they are, yeah. I'm in a Bible study with uh, great godly people, and um, uh, this couple drives up from Casa Grande every week to go to a Bible study here in Gilbert. It's amazing. 
Anyway, he's a, he's a melon farmer. Um, they don't grow on trees. They grow from the ground, and so he farms them. And he sells them to grocery stores. And, and over the past three or four years, um, when I was in this Bible study, I would just hear this couple talk about the trials that they are going through in a real practical way. Like, we're going to lose the farm. Like, we, you know, we're getting sued. Like, we, you know, need $200,000 now, uh, if not more. I mean, just big ticket items. And yet, when they were saying it, I, honest to goodness, somehow they were doing this. Right? They were saying it, but they were saying it, and there was joy. Somehow. I didn't get it. It was right around the same time Leanne died, so we were kind of going through grief together in various ways, and I just, I couldn't get my mind around, how are you guys just saying, well, if God, you know, if God wants it, we'll do it, and we're just, you know, we're okay with it, we'll get some sleep tonight, and we're all going through trials. Aaron McRae just left here, right, Kate, and how big is their trial? And that doesn't minimize your trial. Your trial may have been just getting up today and getting a flat tire, and your trial may have been getting chewed out by your boss today. We're all going through trials here. Um, they just had a cancer support group, right? You know, the hour before we meet, people are meeting uh, because they're going through cancer. Right over here, single moms are meeting when we meet in the mine. What do, what do you think those stories are like when those women get together and share their hearts with each other and share their lives with each other? They could one-up each other on trials, and so could we. And so what I just don't get, I guess, is when Paul says it and Jesus says it and James says it, they always say the same thing, which is be joyful, rejoice. And so my question, I guess, is why? So I ask you, oh, sages of wisdom, why? Why, do, why should I? Why should I rejoice during my trials? You know, I think as far as uh, man and the human race, a lot of times I don't think we have the ability to put our minds around where God is trying to lead us. I mean, our family's uh, been a victim of violent crime, and we live with it every day. And we, we call it the ripple effect, and it has affected so many people, not only in our nucleus of our family, but people as, as far away as Oregon and, and, and around the country. And... You look and say, that happened to us. Like, how can we make a positive impact in other people's lives so that they don't experience the same loss, the same tragedy that we did? That's, thank you for sharing that. It's, um, and, and when I hear about people's trials, I'm sure if I heard about yours, isn't there a feeling that I can't relate? I just, I can't relate to that. Um, and that's what makes trials so sometimes so seemingly difficult is because um, I would have people that hadn't lost anyone um, try to console. And my knee-jerk reaction was, I just, I appreciate it. You have no idea what, what I'm going through. Um, word of advice, by the way, um, never lead sympathy with, I understand. Um, just save yourself the breath um, unless you really do understand. Um, Anyway, yeah, why, why do, why? So, I, so I hear that, and I hear you saying that, but I, I'm still left with the question, why should I rejoice? What, why should I? Yeah, well, here and then we're here. I think we get some teaching there from Paul in, in the 
You know, Jesus basically told him that he would know the cost of service, of being a servant. True. Um, and closer, okay. Um, he would know the cost of being a servant. And then Paul, in his writings, frequently talks about the trials and tribulations, but he has in sight the goal line, and he eventually speaks of that too, that when he gets through all of this, he will get the reward, and that is what he's in it for. Okay, yep, I'm tracking with you here, but, but here, I guess here's my challenge with that is, can I endure this trial and be made complete without rejoicing? Right? And so my flat, you know, I get a flat, for instance. Can I gripe my way to the office, fix the flat, gripe my way to the office? Will I have persevered through that trial? Will the trial be over? Uh, the flat gets fixed, right? I mean, so, right, my options are, I think, I don't know, rejoice or what? Or don't rejoice. <laughs> if I rejoice or don't rejoice, what am I guaranteed, at least? Whether I rejoice or not, what's going to still happen? The trial's still going to be there. So I'm left again with this question, why should I rejoice? Why can't I gripe my way through the trial? Why can't I complain my way through the trial? I'm trying to keep this PG. Why can't I complain my way through the trial? A couple of hands back here, I guess. And yeah, here and then back there. We have to remember that we're not told to be happy. We're not told we have to be happy first. We're told to rejoice, which are two different things. Okay. And so there's a difference between joy and happiness. Right. I get that. Right. Also. Well, hang on. Maybe I'll have your answer. No, no. You're, yep. And so you're right. I don't need to be like skippy, jippy, happy. I'm not sure what that is. But. But, I'm, but I still will challenge this, because I've heard that too. Well, joy is different than happiness. True, but joy is still joy. Joy is still getting up saying, my heart is full, I'm, I'm content. Yes, things are happening all around me, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm joyful. It's still that. It may not be, you know, smile plastered all over your face, but it's, it's still the opposite of sorrow. Not necessarily. It's, just, it's the opposite of bitterness. Can I be sorrowful and joyful at the same time? Ah, maybe yes. you're right. All right. Also, remember, in all the passages that we're told to be joyful or have joy, we're also given the because. The, the, I'm sorry, we're given the what? The because. The because. Okay. If we're joyful, then, or the because. Be joyful because. And it's that because that sustains our joy during that sorrowful, trying times. Okay, so I want to make a list here because I'm going to take a picture of this and write it down so I can learn. I'm to be joyful. Why? Because. One of the reasons is because there's a because. Okay? Get up here somewhere. Oh, right here and then up here. It's not just the because that parents use because I said so. <laughs> Wait. you have... It's not just the because that parents use, because I said so. It's not that kind of because. It's, it, you're saying that there, in the scripture, there's always a because. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I'm with you. Yeah. I think a lot of it has to do with I think you, back in the middle your perspective of life. 
When I was a little boy, my um, mother would say, wait till dad gets home. And uh, you knew something was going to happen when the dad got home. And your whole perspective was that was the end of your life right there. Now, as you get older, and I think <clears throat> as you get older and older, you mature and you realize these episodes are going to be episodes in your life. They're not the end of your life. And also, if you're a Christian and you believe in life beyond, then you can even look more forward to that. And your episodes that um, are the hurdles in your life aren't as great as they would be if, it was, if you considered them the end of your life. Okay, so, I mean, sum that up, though. Why should I be joyful during trials? Because you know there's more than that trial that's in front of you. <clears throat> that trial is only temporary. It's not the end of your life. Okay. And I don't mean your physical life. Right. Because they're temporary. Yeah, back here. Greg, I was just going to say, um, don't we gain strength from the Lord when we're joyful? Nehemiah 8.10. I gain my strength from the Lord when I'm joyful. Correct. He empowers us when we're joyful. Okay. I'll take it. Anyone else? Yeah. Yeah. I think being joyful in trials, it gives us the opportunity to uh, be, become more Christ-like, you know, become closer to his image because um, through the trials, it helps us focus more on God, turn to him, develop hope for heaven, and uh, just removes us from the reality of this world. Yeah, I, I, I take a couple more. Can I just camp out on that for just a second here? Guys, I think that for those of us who've experienced a lot of trials or, or some trials or whatever, I think that I, I, I guess I could bingo next to this one or something like that. Um, I think that's it. I think that when you rejoice in your trials, when you get up and say to the world around you, um, I'm still up. Um, this hasn't beaten me. Uh, God's still good. And you're not just saying it, but you but you mean it. They can see it. They, they see you living it. The only reason that you and I can do that is because Christ is in us. Because we have the strength and power to do that. That's what separates you. That's what distinguishes you from everyone else who goes through trials. Does the non-Christian go through trials? If I don't have Jesus in my life, if I don't have the power of the cross, if I don't have the power of the resurrection in my life, how in the world can I get up if I'm getting beat down by trial after trial after trial and say, I'm still happy, I'm still joyful. But the Christian has the power to do that. And I think it was mentioned over here, never, ever miss the point, guys. If I can tell you one thing about trials that I've learned over the past two years, people are watching how you live it. People want to know because I'm about to go through the same trial or my daughter's about to go through the same trial or my neighbor's going through the same trial. You call yourself a Christian. How are you going to live this trial? See, it's so easy, isn't it, to live the Christian life trial free. It's so easy when life is good. Wasn't Lewis the one who said, you know, when, you know, God whispers when life is good and he, and he speaks when, you know, but he shouts during the trials of your life. I know I really slaughtered that quote, but, but that's what Lewis is saying is, is God whispers when things are good. When things are good, when you come to church and you're happy and healthy and finances are good and nothing's going wrong in your life and we can pray, we can worship God all we want, right? We can feel good about it. 
we look around and think, you know, life's pretty good right now. Uh, you know, your, your Christian faith isn't really put to the test when life is great, is it? Your Christian faith is put to the test when life is just hammering at you time and time and time again. And I think that's where people are looking for your response because they're about to go through it. And they're wondering, how is this Christian going through it? Maybe, just maybe. That's why James leads with rejoice in this suffering. Yeah. Just along those same lines, I was thinking the same thing, that God is in the process of conforming us to to be more Christ-like. So he uses trials to, uh, to get us there. I mean, Jesus started his life with trials, right? He started his ministry by being tempted, by put to the test by Satan. And in John 13, I think, doesn't Jesus say to us, to you and to me, you're going to have trials. Please don't live life thinking, uh, you know, maybe I'll live a trial. You're going to have trials. Children of mine, brothers and sisters of mine, the question isn't whether the trials are coming, it's how will you respond? And Jesus is claiming, I think, to you and me, go counterintuitive, go countercultural, which is the, the culture saying gripe and complain and moan. And guys, I want to show you something really, really quick here because I don't want you to leave thinking because I really, when, when my trial happened, I really did believe I was supposed to wake up every day and just kind of rejoice. And maybe I'm just a bad Christian, but that didn't happen for me. Uh, there were a lot of days where there was no rejoicing. There was a lot of begging God, if I can be honest with you, uh, to end this trial or end my life, quite honestly. Take the pain or take my life. Um, So I want to be clear. I want you to hear. I want you to leave tonight thinking, oh, Greg's telling me, because I'm going through just, I'm going through hell right now, honestly. And Greg's telling me I just have to rejoice. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. Recently... Recently, we have gone through a lot of trials with my wife. But one thing has really sustained me as I've gotten gotten into it. Some people didn't know this already. There's a hymn that I love, and it's called, It Is Well With My Soul. One of the verses says, though Satan may buffet and trials will come, let this blessed assurance control that he sees me in my helpless estate, but he shed his own blood for my soul. Hmm. That has sustained me. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Uh, we, we are uh, unfortunately at a time. Um, uh, my watch says I got three minutes, so let me do this. Um, turn to Psalm 13. I just want to give you some real practical, I guess. If you're going through a trial tonight, um, just really quickly, a couple of bullet points out of Psalm 13, and then we'll call it a night. How about that? I just, I don't think James is saying, be fake. I don't, uh, guys, I've been around people who have gone through trials, and they really, they're, they're, they're grinning, and they're in pain when they're doing it. And I look at them and think, I don't, I don't know what you're doing. You, you look like you're in pain right now. No, I'm happy. I'm, everything's good. God will work it all out. It, it doesn't look that way. It looks like you're hurting. What they're doing is they're denying the reality that suffering and trials will bring pain. And I don't think we need to dismiss that. 
Psalm 13, David starts with this. How long, O Lord? This is the guy who's after God's own heart. David says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? (laughs) How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? I think it's okay, guys, to proclaim your misery. I think it's okay to tell God you're miserable. I don't think we should ever fear that. God's a big God. God can handle you and me coming to him saying, what is going on? Okay, so I think it's okay to do that. David says in verse 3, consider and answer me, God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I've overcome him, Let my adversaries, lest my adversaries rejoice when I'm shaking. I think it's okay to ask God to take the, the, the misery away from you. David does. I think it's okay to say to God, I am dying here, God. And I'm asking you to get rid of it. I think it's okay. I think we need to admit that. I think when non-Christians, folks, honestly, when they see us walking around with our heads in the cloud and, and we're getting beat up by life and we're just kind of, you know, we're, we're denying it by our actions that it's not painful, it's not real, everything's going to work out, everything's going to be okay. That's not saying I don't live by faith, but it is saying that I'm denying the reality of pain. I don't see David doing that. David thinks God's forgotten him. But watch this, verse 5. After he says, God, I'm miserable and I want you to take it from me, David is wise enough to say, but I have trusted in the Lord. I've trusted in your loving kindness. My heart will rejoice or be full of joy in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. He's, He's been good to me. And I think that's where we need to end is, yes, I can say to God, I'm miserable. Yes, I can say, deliver me. But I need to get to a point, guys. In my pain, I need to get to a point where I can say, you're good. I don't get it, God. I don't know why it happened. And I really, I don't want it anymore. But I'm not going to deny what I know to be true, which is you're good. And Paul says in Romans 5, when I do that, Not only do I endure, and not only am I made complete, but this is what I show the world. I show the world hope. And I don't know much, guys, I really don't, but I do know that we live in a broken world and they are looking for hope. Not pie in the sky, cloud, global hope kind of a thing, let's save everyone, but I I need hope from my neighbor and you're my neighbor. Show me hope. I need hope from my coworker. You're my coworker. Show me how you live with hope because I know your life isn't great right now. I know that your business is about to go under. Show me how to live with hope when, when, when life's really on the line for you. Show me how you get up and live with hope because that is Christ living in you and the non-Christian says, I want to know that. I want to know that kind of person because you're living with the hope that I desperately need. Maybe, just maybe this week, if you're going through a trial or you know someone that is, maybe, just maybe, we can look at James 1, 2 and say, God, I don't get everything, but I get the fact that I will one day be made complete. We'll talk about this a little bit next week. I have to endure through this trial. And my attitude when I endure through this trial is going to be one of hope, one of rejoicing. Maybe, just maybe, that will be the light unto the dark world that you have a circle of influence over this week.
Let's pray. Father, I, I know that this room is filled with people who are hurting. And that's just because there's people in this room. I know, Father, that uh, the scriptures don't lie. And I know that the, the wisdom that comes from the scriptures is often difficult to handle because it is countercultural and counterintuitive. But God, may we believe your word tonight. For those of us that are knee-jerk to trials and temptations is to deflect and, and to gripe and to complain. And God, may we find joy this week. May we just find even that, that, that waking up with that moment of hope that if nothing else, I've got heaven. If this trial persists forever till I die, I've got heaven. And even if that's our only hope, Father, that's enough. For many of us, the, the, the trial is going to pass. Life will get better for us, Father. And during the time of our testing the testing of our faith, may we prove to be um, believers who are trusting in our Heavenly Father for the strength we need to live with hope. When that happens and when people ask us, why are we rejoicing in our trials? May God, we be so quick to bring the name of Christ into the conversation. We love you, Father. Thanks for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll see you next week.